That's Mark 12, verses 18 through 27 on page 848. If you do not have a Bible, we ask that you take the one in the chair in front of you home with you. Again, Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. The Sadducees ask about the resurrection. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word. All right. Excited to look at God's word with you here. Just a couple of things. You, again, you may have noticed it's raining, so we're going to do fellowship in here. There's a, you can check out our designer flooring in the, in the kitchen. Meant to look just like the 70s, and, and they nailed it. Uh, they nailed it. So we're going to have fellowship in there. And then there's a lot of issues I, I wanted to deal with and couldn't in our text this morning. So if you want to, after the service, I'm going to hang around up here. If you want to ask any questions about uh, what you encountered in the Bible today or anything else about the Bible or Christianity or just hear other people's questions, we're going to be right over there. Every question's welcome. And if I don't know the answer, I'll either make one up or tell you I don't know <laughs> or tell you I don't want to answer that question right now. But we'll have a good conversation. Let's pray. Lord, maybe the first time we hear this text, it doesn't seem to have much to do with us, but the more we dive into what's being discussed here, we, we see how this is just massively important. Uh, if it's true, it changes everything. So, Lord, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be with us, Lord. We believe that you are still speaking today through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray you'd help me to teach this passage faithfully, and we pray that we would have soft hearts, open ears to hear it, receive it, and build our lives on it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, after a busy summer, I was thankful to enjoy some vacation with my family last week. We uh, went up near Mammoth, backpacked over Duck Pass at 11,000 feet. It was pretty awesome. I was proud of my family for all the challenges we faced and my dog who carried her own, uh, her own food and water in her backpack. Uh, I met somebody actually up on the mountain pass. It's kind of an epic place. It's like a half tunnel. And uh, I met somebody there. Obviously, we're not the only people who ever hiked there. And he was a really nice guy. He was familiar with our area. We chatted for a moment. And then he started telling me about this. Get ready. There are magnetic forces underneath our nation's capital 
that enable you to have a more direct connection with God and the universe. So, what do you think my internal response was to that? <laughs> Did I think, well, that seems reasonable. Let's get a ticket to D.C. No, I, I thought internally, well, that has to be one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. So, due to my experience, right, what seems to me like common sense, what I already believe, uh, this idea, per, this particular idea of magnetic fields at the capital that connect me to God, um, that was implausible. In other words, it is so not believable to me that I don't even really consider it. I blow it off, I brush it off, it's just, it's ridiculous to me. That word, plausibility, it means believability. Something uh, you're open to considering, right? For each of us, there are ideas where you're open to considering those ideas. Other people are not open to considering those ideas. They think some things you believe are ridiculous. They find them implausible. And back at you on the other side, right? There are things other people believe, they find them plausible, that you think, oh, it's, it's crazy. Many scholars have written about this idea of Plausibility structures, and I know that sounds really academic, and it can be as academic as you want it to be, but really what it's, what it's just discussing here is what is it that makes certain things believable to certain people in certain times and places? Why is an idea believable here, popular here, but not there? And why do those things change? Because they do change. So, for instance, right, if you were born in England a couple hundred years ago, what would you most likely have found plausible when it comes to understanding life? Well, you'd, you'd live in a version of Christian theocracy, right? And it would be God, king, and country. How would atheism sound to you in that context? Well, there almost aren't any atheists. It's completely implausible. It's unbelievable. It doesn't even hit the radar on, huh, I should think about that. It, it's not plausible. It's not believable. Give it a couple hundred years, and plausibility structures change. 2015 survey showed that 40% of adults in Britain aren't even sure Jesus was an actual historical person, much less the Son of God, and I bet it's even higher now. So in Britain, it's now Christianity that seems implausible and unbelievable. You mention the gospel to them, you'd be like, oh, it's ridiculous. What happened? Well, that's a bigger question than I can try to answer today. But I bring up this idea of plausibility. Again, what are we talking about? Things that people find reasonable, believable, because our passage this morning centers in on resurrection. Resurrection. And that idea sounds implausible to many people. And even when we say it out, out loud as someone who believes in the resurrection, it does sound Amazing. It's the idea that death is not the end. Death is not the end. But it's more than that. It's not just that your soul lives on like a ghost. No. To believe in the resurrection means the idea that every single person, no matter if their corpse was eaten by crabs at the bottom of the ocean or dissolved into dust several thousand years ago, 
every single person is going to be raised into an eternal body that lasts forever, either in judgment or in bliss. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the resurrection. Is that believable to you? Do you believe that? Is that plausible to you? Yeah, that's reasonable. Or when you hear that, do you think, that has got to be one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard? Because that's the way many people feel about this idea of resurrection. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. We're in the last third of this Gospel, which focuses in on the last week of Jesus' life. And as we've seen week after week, the issue of these chapters is the issue of authority. The decisive voice. Who says? Many times throughout his gospel, Mark has given testimony of Jesus' unique, unparalleled authority. Let's remember some of his authority. How about authority over nature? Didn't he speak to the storm, be still? And it was. How about authority over sickness? Didn't he say to the paralyzed men, get up and walk? And he did. How about authority over evil and the demonic? He tells the spirit, get out. And it does. How about authority over forgiveness? He says, who's right with God or not? We've seen unique, unparalleled authority. Mark says over and over again, the people are shocked at how Jesus teaches at one, as one with authority. He doesn't need to reference other sources. He is the source. And from Mark's point of view, it totally makes sense, given who Jesus is. Jesus' authority flows from who he is. Mark 1.1, he told us in the beginning, didn't he? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's Christ mean? Promised king. God's promised king. The Old Testament promises this one who's going to come, he's going to reign, he's going to rule, he's going to save, he's going to renew. That's Jesus He's God's promised king. Not only that, he is the son of God. He's the eternal son of God in the flesh. No wonder he has unparalleled authority. If that's who Jesus is, truly, what he says is true. What he says goes. He's the authority. Lately, we've seen how Jesus entered into Jerusalem as God's king, right? He did it right in the middle of Passover, this massive feast. A million and a half people are there. And where does he go as he comes into the city on that humble donkey. Where does he go? He goes into the temple. He goes into this massive area of the Gentiles. And you remember, he shut it down. He turns over tables. He kicks out the uh, corrupt money changers. And he begins teaching the people who are hanging on his every word. The, the whole thing has, has slowed to a stop and is centered in on him. It's as if he said, this is my temple. He's the authority on how to know God. He's claiming, as he does this, unparalleled authority. So what do you think was the response of the religious leaders as Jesus claimed total authority? It's probably some of the same response um, some of you might be having right now, or maybe you have had in the past. How do you like it? When Jesus, through his word, looks in your eyes and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. Or when he says, you're guilty before God, and your only hope is me. 
Or when he looks at you and, and all the times you said, well, I feel God's this way. And Jesus says, it honestly doesn't matter how you feel what God is like. I reveal what God is like. It, it becomes uncomfortable, doesn't it? To face the claim of unparalleled, exclusive authority, even for those of us who have been Christians for years. Don't you still run into the rub of God's authority in your life, especially when you look on uh, in texts about sins he's calling you to stop or ways he's calling you to love more sacrificially or the, or the amount of holiness he really wants in your life? When he looks at you and tells you, hey, I love you as you are, but I'm not leaving you the way you are. I want more. And we, again, authority right in front of us, right at us. Well, to the religious leaders... They hate him for his claim of authority. We can understand that. His authority threatens theirs. In light of his authority, they are exposed as false authorities. And so they feel they are in danger of losing their place with the people, their power, and of course their profit from the temple system. So what's their response? They want him dead. Remember Mark eleven eighteen. The chief priests and the scribes heard it. Jesus claimed authority in the temple, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So they would like nothing better than to walk in, arrest him, and do away with him, but they can't. And, you, and Mark tells us why. The crowds are hanging on his every word. He's swamped by the crowds, and they're enamored by him. So they feel they can't do anything. They really just have one option. What's their option? Well, let's, let's make Jesus look terrible in front of the crowd. And then when they are no longer excited about him, we can do away with him as we please. And so that's been their tack, right? If you were here last week, they tried it on the issue of taxes. It didn't work, did it? They gave it their best shot. Jesus gave his answer. Instead of the crowd being uninfatuated with Jesus, they were more infatuated with Jesus. They were more amazed by Jesus. And those who claimed to be authorities looked more and more foolish but they're not giving up. We get another round of Jesus' enemies, the religious leaders, coming to try to make him look ridiculous in front of the crowd so that they can dispose of him and his claim to authority. So here we go. The Sadducees are coming after Jesus on the issue of resurrection. We have three main points. The attack, Jesus' response, and the plausibility the attack, Jesus' response, the plausibility. So first, the attack. Look at Mark 12, 18. Meet a new group of folks. In Mark, the Sadducees came to Jesus who say there is no resurrection. Well, who are the Sadducees? Historians tell us they were the elite of society. They're wealthy, they're well-known, they're influential, I guess if you're reading People magazine back then and wondering who went where for dinner, some of the Sadducees would be in that magazine. You guys don't read that magazine, do you? All right. No, no judgment. They have deep connections in the priesthood and the temple administration especially. So they are incredibly unhappy with Jesus ending their lucrative sacrificial lamb selling business. Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees were quite happy to coexist and cooperate with Rome. So it's kind of as if you had the right-wingish coming after Jesus in our text last week, and kind of like you have the left-wingish coming after Jesus in this text. 
Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. So everything else after that, Joshua to Malachi, the Sadducees say, not Scripture. That's obviously going to have implications on what they believe, isn't it? So there's the Sadducees, wealthy, well-connected, um, the elite of society, in charge of temple administration, probably. Um, doctrinally, as the text tells you, they deny the resurrection. In fact, they deny the reality of angels, they deny the reality of life after death, and they deny the reality of the, rex- the resurrection. It seems ridiculous to them. So I don't know, it reminds me maybe of uh, Thomas Jefferson, right? Cutting all the miracles out of his Bible. We'll, we'll keep what, we, what seems plausible to us and we'll throw out what seems ridiculous, like miracles, like resurrection. Or modern liberal theologians of the past, what, 150, 200 years that, that work really hard to kind of in a scholarly way, explain away all the supernatural in Scripture. It's kind of where the Sadducees are coming from, in a way. And here's their attack. You see it in verses 18 to 21. All right, here's our chance. we got to discredit Jesus. So he looks like a fool in front of the crowds. And here's their attack, 18 to 21. I'm going to read it again because it is so such a different idea for us. 18, they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and so on and so on. In the resurrection, whose husband is she? She had seven husbands. And evidently, that is supposed to lock up the machine and be like, oh, no, what do we do now? There's no such thing as a resurrection. Well, before we move any further, let's, let's think a little bit about what the Sadducees are talking about. They're quoting from Deuteronomy 25 in a section regarding what you could call leveret marriage. And don't think of the tribe of Levi. Think of brother-in-law. Here's Deuteronomy 25.5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, I assume this idea is a little bit strange to you. It's a little strange to me. And we have some cultural expectations to think about, don't we? So we think about our cultural moment. Stereotypically, marriage, if you're going to do it at all, what's it about in our culture? Well, it's about self-fulfillment, maybe some love, and I guess kids. In their day, flip it around. What's marriage about? Kids, 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 family lineage, some love would be great. And what is this thing called self-fulfillment you're talking about? That's how they would think about our culture. So in this case, right, it's a, it's a specific situation, brothers dwell together. If a married man dies with no son, 
That means his name and his lineage disappears on the land God has promised to his people. And so for their hopes and dreams, that is the nightmare. Please know anything but that. And so here's the situation. In that unique situation, a brother-in-law has to take responsibility to provide for, number one, his dead brother's name and lineage and family and for his dead brother's wife. So obviously, this is, this is not really about romance, is it? It's not really about finding someone who fulfills you. It's about provision for needs. In our culture, this makes no sense. And with the end of the old covenant, it's obsolete to us, right? We don't live in that covenant. But for that moment, it made incredible sense. And it's, it's amusing to go back and read the entire text. If a brother-in-law refuses to do this, the elders and this, uh, and this lady, she spits in his face in front of the elders and calls him man who's had his sandal removed. Which, I'm going to assume that is not a testament to your masculinity, right? And they actually put on his house, he who has had his sandal removed, because he won't man up and provide for other people's needs. But anyway, that's beside the point for us right now. Do you see the implications of what the Sadducees are trying to do? They take this piece of scripture, and it is in the Mosaic Law, And they invent this kind of theoretical story, right, of this poor lady. Seven brothers, right? One, oh, let's get married. He's dead. Two, and so on. You know, number three, he's thinking, wow, what a coincidence. All my brothers are dying. Number four, husband number four, he's getting worried. Number five, he's petrified. I don't even know what number six was thinking. That's how badly he did not want to be known as he who has had his sandal pulled off. Then mercifully, right, she finally is like, enough. Seven husbands in heaven. And so you can hear the cynics laughing. Ha ha, you guys and your ridiculous idea about resurrection. It makes no intellectual sense at all. You're a bunch of fools. You just believe in a myth, right? Haven't you heard this before? You guys just go to Christianity because you're weak and you need an emotional crutch. And thinking of the, the pie in the heavenly skies, it makes you feel happy in this Sad, sad life. But you really, you're a bunch of, we almost feel sorry for you, right? That you would believe things like this. It's implausible. It's unbelievable to think of a resurrection. So that's the attack. How does Jesus respond? Well, we, we look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I find this incredibly amusing. You will notice his response is not exactly politically correct. You know, he didn't come back with, well, there are a lot of views on religion, and uh, many have different views on the resurrection. And, uh, you know, fundamentally, all the roads take us to God. Does does he give you anything like that at all? Or, Or what did he say? Can you believe it? What did he say? He said, you are wrong. You're so wrong because you don't even know the scriptures. I mean, saying that to the religious leaders of Israel. And because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know God and his power. Wow. 
Again, he's speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. They're there trying to defame his authority. And it's not working. And here they are exposed as the false authorities, right? What's the one thing they're supposed to have right? The scriptures and the power of God. And what do they have wrong? The scriptures and the power of God. So I I think there's three aspects to Jesus' response here. Number one, the authority of the scriptures. Do you see it loud and clear? What did Jesus believe about the Old Testament scriptures? What did he believe and lead us to believe about the Bible? It's the word of God. It's the authority. Jesus believed the scriptures could never fail, that not one word would fail. He believed them to be the very word of his Father. That's the authority. And if you leave that authority, think of what the Sadducees had done, right? Tinkered with God's word. We'll keep some and leave the other. We'll keep some and leave the other. Do you hear that in the world around you? We believe Jesus and not Paul. We do red letters and not black ones, as if uh, the red letters are, are Jesus' words and, and not the others. No. Jesus himself asserted that the scriptures were the word of God and the ultimate authority. And if you tinker with them, if you leave them, just like the Sadducees, you will be wrong. You'll be quite wrong. And the word Jesus uses for wrong is not like, uh, you tried your best, but you made a mistake. Nobody's perfect. That's, that's not the, the sense of this word. The word is, you were rebellious in your tinkering, and you, are, you have left the road. You're in the weeds. It's your fault you're wrong. Again, they're exposed as false authorities, aren't they? They're trying to expose Jesus as the fool. The matter of fact is, they're the fools. They've left the authority of God's word. He also asserts the power of God according to the scriptures. The power of God according to the scriptures. So just backing up a little bit, um, the Bible tells us you could look at just the created world around you. Shouldn't you learn something about, about the power of God? That this is here. That you know there's a God and he's powerful to make this. But especially the scriptures, God's special revelation, they show us God's power and what he's doing and what he can do. So how does this play into this moment? Well, the the Sadducees had an assumption when it came to the idea of resurrection. And it's the same assumption that their opponents, the Pharisees, had. Here was the assumption The resurrection was just an extension of this life. That's their assumption. Resurrection life is just an extension of this life. So, for for instance, the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, but they would actually debate what clothes you would be resurrected in. Okay. They can hang out with the dude and his magnetic forces on a... a Okay. But it's the idea that, well, well, it's just an extension of this life. And the Sadducees see that, and they think it's ridiculous. And, and to that point, I, I agree with them. If the resurrection is just an extension of this life, and that, say, anybody who's, a, um, their spouse perished and they got remarried. So, so what do we do now? They all have, who's married to who? How do we do this in heaven? It, it, that, that seems preposterous, but it's built on an assumption 
that the resurrection life is just an extension of this life. Why do you have that assumption? Jesus does not share that assumption. And he wants to bring us to the idea of God's power. God's power. I mean, it must be power, right, to create all things. And it's, it's, it's real power to bring resurrection. And Jesus, he asserts that by God's power, yes, some things are consistent from this life and the next, but also everything is dramatically transformed by the power of God, dramatically transformed. So let's think of some things that will be consistent in the resurrection, and I find this to be comforting stuff. In the resurrection, you will be you and and recognizably so. I mean, you may shine like the sun, but it'll shine like in the sun like you shine like like the sun. And you'll be knowable by others, and you will know others. Isn't that wonderful? You're still you. And recognizably so. Not only that, you'll have real memories, real relationships. Isn't it comforting to think of believers gone before who will see again? Your body will be made of real stuff. Did you know that? Heaven is not, I don't know what you saw in the Far Side commercials or like a Simpsons episode. It's not you like floating in the clouds trying to learn a new instrument, the harp, right? And it's not ethereal, it's not vaporous. You will be in a body that makes this one look ghostly for how solid and strong and indestructible that thing is. Real body. And if you belong to God, you will be on a real earth. Isn't that exciting? I mean, this earth is awesome. I, just, I got to go backpacking last week. This, this, this earth is awesome. Can you imagine an uncursed, sinless world meant to thrill God's people forever? How good can it be? Well, how good and powerful is God? But Jesus says some things are different, right? Verse 25, when they rise from the dead... And in context here, I mean, we know from Scripture, everybody rises from the dead. I think he's thinking specifically of God's people. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So some things are different, aren't they? Some things are transformed. So I've been too many funerals. I know I need to make this clear. You will not become an angel. Did you grab that? Have you been to a funeral? Oh, he's an, he's an angel now. He's not, no. You're not going to become an angel. All God's people said, amen. You're going to be human forever. But you'll be like angels. In what way? Well, you'll be cute little statues with wings, right? You'll have wings. It's ridiculous. Stop. How will you be like angels? You'll be eternal. You'll be strong. You'll be pure of heart and mind. And by the way, you won't be married. You won't be married. There's some implications here, right? In the resurrection, is there still marriage? 
Well, it depends what you mean. I don't know, I'm just noticing how the Bible starts and finishes with a wedding. It's Adam and Eve in the garden, and that is set forth as an essential and delightful institution for life in this age. I am quite pro-marriage. But it's not the ultimate marriage. It's just an, it's an appetizer to the marriage. And that's why heaven is called the wedding feast of the Lamb. Because somehow the, the real marriage Jesus Christ is the husband, and we together, his people, are the bride. That's the real marriage. And so in a time and an age where there's no more death, there's also no more procreation, the only children there are children of God. The only marriage there is Christ and his church. And we somehow have delightful, loving relationships with one another as brothers and sisters. So what is a foundational treasure for human life now, the institution of marriage, it's obsolete in the next life because things have been transformed. And I admit that can be difficult for us to understand, can it? And in a way, it should be difficult for us to understand, right? We are jealous for our spouses, and we should be in this life that is fitting, um, but in the next life, it changes. Here's something that helps me. Imagine being a seven-year-old kid uh, eating chocolate with your mom. Can you imagine? There you are. You're sitting with your mom. You're eating chocolate. And she says to you, oh, honey, uh, one day you'll move away and maybe even get married. And you, seven-year-old you, you said, but mommy, I don't want to leave you. I want to stay with you and eat chocolate. And that's sweet and appropriate to the moment. You're seven. What tends to happen by the time you're 17? 27. We love our kids. We don't need them wanting to sit and eat chocolate with us all the time when they're 27. And when you're seven, you can't imagine it, but you give it some time and you're like, you know, I love you, mom, and things change. Isn't it kind of like that from now in heaven? I'm like a seven-year-old kid. I don't understand how the change is great, but I'm promised that it is. And when Jesus says, look at the power of God, because in the context of the Torah, he's saying the same God who created this delightful thing called our earth and human beings and all the things we enjoy, does he not power to make an entire Entirely transformed way of living that we call the resurrection. Can't he do it? Of course he can do it. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I won't unpack this. Let's just hear it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, be, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, what happens? And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, 
This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Then this great question, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's the promise of God and the power of God. So Jesus is responding to Sadducees. He talks about the authority of Scripture. He talks about the power of God. He also talks about the faithfulness of God. Did you see Jesus Jesus began to quote from Exodus 3? He does that in verse 26. As for the dead being raised, and here's another one of those amusing phrases, have you not read in the book of Moses? So these, these guys see themselves, right, as being experts in the book of Moses. This is their Bible. This is, the, this is the part of the Bible they receive as authoritative. And for Jesus to say, have you not read? <laughs> why is he doing that? Why is he, why is he punching them in the kidneys like that? Why is he needling them like that? Here's why. I think this is what Jesus is saying here. Even in your use of Scripture, you're standing over it to make it say what you want it to say. Isn't that easy to do? It's like a hobby of the religious world. To take a scripture and instead of honing in on the author's intent, I take some language that sounds sort of like what I want to say and I make the Bible verse fit my agenda. So Jesus is saying you're standing over the scriptures instead of letting the scriptures stand over you. That's that's the Christian heart, isn't it? I want to I don't want to invent what the Bible says. I want to discover what the Bible says and submit to what the Bible says. It stands over me. And if you don't read it that way, Jesus would wonder if you've read it at all. Have you not read? But also, he wants to talk about resurrection from Exodus 3. Now, I would bet, if any of you Bible scholars out there, if I had said to you, find me some resurrection in the Old Testament, I don't think this would have made your top 10. Maybe you're, more, you're quicker on the draw than I am. But Jesus says, let's go to Exodus 3 and talk resurrection. Now, what's one reason he, do- he does that? Which part of the Bible did they see as authoritative? The Torah. First five books. So what does Jesus say? Let's talk Torah. I I can play there. We'll go to what you see as authoritative. And he talks about Exodus 3. Now this really is amazing. You remember the story in Exodus 3, right? This is Moses' encounter with God at what we call the burning bush. It's a misnomer a little bit because what is the bush not actually doing? It's not burning. That's what's crazy about it. We've seen things on fire before. Why do you have to keep putting logs on the fire? Because the fire needs the logs. The fire needs the logs. What's weird about this fire? It doesn't need any logs. It doesn't need. 
It's burning with no fuel, and that is meant to teach you about the holy God. What does he need? Nothing. He's all sufficient in himself. He is white hot eternal life. He is actually what it means to live in the strength of himself. And that God, the God who is life, the indestructible God, he names himself I am, the one who always is. And then he names himself, this eternal God, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That by itself should boggle your mind. Now go ahead and read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are they bastions of consistency, integrity, leadership, courage, and faith? Well, let's not get it wrong. They do have real faith, and it did change their lives, and there are things to look at them as an example for. But in general, no! They're weak, they're flawed, they're sinful, they make horrible mistakes. But the holy, eternal God says, here's one of my names. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How does Jesus find resurrection there? Well, I think the more you ponder it, the more it'll be clear. Number one, throughout the Torah, God is making promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, isn't he? I mean, that's what the whole thing is about, his promises to them. And he promises to deliver them and to satisfy them and to know them and to bless them and to defeat their enemies. Well, could it be that this God will defeat every enemy for you except death? I mean, in all honesty, if you can defeat all my enemies except death, you kind of missed You kind of miss the major enemy. In Jesus' mind, that's unthinkable. Do you think when God wants a relationship with someone to love them, he's going to let death end that relationship? Not a chance. Do you think when God makes eternal promises to someone, where even the book of Hebrews will say, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't even see, right, the fullness of God's promises. Do you think he lets them just die and only see, like, 2% of a promise and call that good? Is that this God? It's unthinkable to Jesus. No way. These are eternal promises and they will be kept to these people eternally. There's no way this God would let death end his promises or his love. And Jesus points out his name, God's name is I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God doesn't say, oh, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they were around, I was their God. No, no, no. I'm still their God right now. They're with me right now. I'm keeping my promises to them right now. And I will forever. This is the faithfulness of God. Friends, do you think God's going to let anything break his relationship with you or his promises to you? Even death? Think of the goodness of God. Think of the power of God. He's faithful. Well, that's all in Jesus' response. He closes verse 27. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And then he adds another one. You are quite wrong. 
So, you know, these poor religious leaders, I wish, you know, somebody needs to tell them, hey, you got to stop quiet, trying to debate with Jesus. This is not going well for you. They came to try to expose him as a fool. And in, the, in Luke's account, the scribes here admit, ah, teacher, you have answered well. In Matthew's account, the crowd was again astonished at Jesus and the Sadducees were silent. These poor guys are like, ha ha, we got Jesus. And they walk away like, ooh, didn't quite work. And we see again the absolutely unparalleled authority of Jesus Christ. Attack, response, now plausibility. What's that word mean again? What do you see as believable? Receivable. True. Have you ever thought, can I really trust myself to Christianity? I mean, you do sound kind of crazy, right? You're waiting for a guy with a tattoo on his leg riding a white horse to come back for you that everybody's going to see at the same time. You're going to live how long in the next life? For, for, forever? Can you, can you really believe in these incredible miracles? Did a group of people really walk up to a, an ocean and Moses go with his rod and then the whole thing's like, whoosh. You walk across it? It's hard to believe. I've never seen anything like that. I don't want to believe stuff just because my parents told me to because I went to Sunday school. Is this plausible? And, and here's where it's really important. Jesus wants your life. He wants you to, willing, he wants you to be willing to uh, obey him at any cost, and he wants you to be willing to suffer and die for him if necessary. So let's just admit it. For, for you to actually do that, you need to believe this is truth. If, you don't, if you're not confident it's truth, why would you be willing to do it? Is this plausible? Is this believable? Can I really trust Jesus through thick and thin, through death? Am I, am I being just, you know, am I leaning on it like a crutch because I'm sad that people die? Or am I saying something true and real? Or how about this? Can I really know I'm forgiven? Friends, you need to see the resurrection is not just a theoretical religious idea to Jesus. He's not just at a seminary class doing a lecture. All throughout Mark, we've seen it many times. I'm going to read to you one. Look what Jesus said. I mean, I just imagine as Jesus having this conversation with the Sadducees about the resurrection, he knows what's coming in days. What's coming in a couple of days? Cross. What's going to get him through that? Look at how he speaks, Mark 10, 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. One more thing. After three days, he will rise. He will rise. I will rise. That's what Jesus hopes in. Mark 10, 45. This gives meaning to everything. Jesus is not the only one to ever be crucified on a Roman cross. What makes his death unique? Well, it's who he is. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
He bought you on the cross, and his resurrection vindicates what he did. It's the Father saying, yes, true, right, absolutely. It is finished. And by all trustworthy accounts, Jesus died on the cross, and what did happen three days later? He rose from the dead. And and thinking of plausibility, friends, you realize the gospel showed us not just that Jesus rose, but he also the gospels always show also show us how implausible Jesus' resurrection was to his own disciples. Right? We've looked at these texts together, where the disciples waiting in front of the tomb, like three, two, one, third day resurrection, or or when Mary runs back and says, "I saw him; he's alive." Are they like, "Oh, sweet Mary, you've never lied before. We believe you." No. What was their first response, their second response to the resurrection? I don't believe it. It was like hearing magnetic fields under the capital get you close to God. It's it's an idle tale. That's what one of the gospels says. They thought it was an idle tale. It's ridiculous. No way. But like I said, sometimes plausibility structures change. And this one changed. You know when it changed? When Jesus popped in the room with them and said, what's up? When he ate fish and said, look, I'm not a ghost. When he said to Thomas, you, you want to feel him? Feel him. Feel the scars. I'm alive. When he appeared to them over 40 days, teaching them, eating with them, he's alive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians I could give you 500 names of people who saw Jesus alive. Some have, some have died, but some are still alive. How many, how many people do you want to call? How many people do you need to talk to? He's alive. And it, trans, it transformed the disciples, didn't they? I mean, you have to have an answer for why these men are so different. They were flaky. They were unstable. They didn't understand what's going on. All of a sudden, they become pillars of integrity. And literally, the echo of what happened through them has changed the world. Jesus is alive. And to me, that's where I put the anchor of all my other questions. What makes anything else plausible, believable in the Bible? For me, it kind of goes like this. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He predicted his death and resurrection, and he did it. And he believed all the scriptures are God's word. I'm good. It's good enough for me. It's plausible. In fact, it becomes so plausible. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. I see Christianity like I see the sunrise. Not only do I see it, I see everything else by it. Every other view of the world, when you see Jesus and his resurrection, every other view of the world becomes implausible. How do I get close to God? Uh, Magnetic fields or whatever else you want to put on there? No, 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 no. I have Jesus. I I, I can't get better than that. A Mormon tried to evangelize me a couple years ago. I was like, bro, I'm saved by grace through faith, and I can drink coffee. What do you have for me? (laughs) What do you have for me? He's got nothing for me. We have the best thing, the truest thing, the realest thing, because Jesus rose from the dead. It's plausible. I hope you find it plausible. And the reason we argue for it, the reason we think about it, is because 
Yes, the resurrection is epic, right? It's epic. It's way bigger than just me or it's just you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to transform the cosmos. But Mark's aim is a little more particular. Because you know what he wants as he writes this gospel? He wants your heart. He wants your affections. He wants your mindset. He wants you convinced of the reality of the resurrection. He is writing to Christians in Rome, some of whom will be thrown to wild beasts for their faith in Christ. And man, when the lions start running at you, you're going to need faith in the resurrection. Come eat me. I will rise. And there's a warning here. Look what Jesus says in John 5. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Do do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This resurrection is inevitable. You will rise. Do you belong to Christ through faith in him? And do you live in light of what he's done for you? Or do you live in rebellion to him? You still rise. You rise to judgment. So this is just epic, isn't it? Look to the cross that was vindicated by the resurrection. Jesus lived a perfect life for you to make you righteous. He died in your place so that you could be forgiven of all your sins. And that's true. It's vindicated. It's real by the resurrection. And now, because you belong to him, let your heart anchor on this. God's love for you is stronger than death. His promises to you cannot be ended by death. And when you anchor on that, you can live a life of courage and love for his glory. Because really, what? You're unstoppable. Death, where's your sting? And in light of Jesus and his authority, that's the only plausible way to live, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we see your son revealed to us in the scriptures, and there's no one like him. We're amazed by him. There's no way this person was invented. This is the real and living son of God. And uh, we're humbled by your authority, and we want to come with submissive hearts and bow the knees of our hearts to you. Jesus, you are king, and God, we've sinned against you, and we need your forgiveness. We thank you for the generous offer you bestow to us that all who repent of their sin and trust in you, you are happy to forgive. Not only that, you embrace. You are a God of love who loves your people and your promises are sure. So Lord, win our hearts today. If anyone's here who walked in the door not a Christian, I pray that they would See Jesus and what he's done and what he offers and trust him and belong to you even today. For those who are yours, Lord, we face sickness, death, persecution, tyranny, disappointment. 
all the time, set our hope on resurrection. It's coming. Even just 150 years from now, every single person on this campus will have died. We want to be with you then together. So do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.